the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to talk about a topic that we're all intimately familiar with and probably all at one level or another, certainly at one time or another in our lives, equally chagrined by and embarrassed by. Remember that passage? It's early on in Genesis. I'm going to do this from memory, I think around Genesis 3.10 or somewhere in that neighborhood um, where Adam and Eve have now partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have discovered their nakedness and in a response to their shame, they have hid themselves from God. Shame, in some ways, can be a healthy mechanism. Unfortunately, shame, in other ways, can move us away from others that can help us and encourage us. And as we see in the case of this passage in uh, Genesis 3.10 and following, that, that shame can move us away from God. That certainly was the case of the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of believers today are crippled by shame. They are paralyzed by shame. They have a damaged view of themselves and as a result um, have to deal with that damaged view as it relates to even impacting how they see or understand how God sees them. Literally standing as a barrier between themselves and a healthy relationship with God. Let's talk about this matter of shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson joins us new book out by InterVarsity Press called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves. As I say, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And Dr. Thompson, great to have you on the program with us tonight. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. Let's talk about shame for a moment. We, we naturally think, even as we read that passage in Genesis, that shame is a bad, awful, terrible thing that has terrible consequences. But isn't there a degree, a certain fashion in which shame can be helpful? For example, if I... If I were to back into a lit stove, without the benefit of pain to tell me I'm burning, there would be nothing to communicate to myself to step away from the stove so that I don't do further damage to my body. Is there a manner in which shame, to a degree, could function like that, could be helpful to us if, if, if it's responded to in a healthy fashion, both emotionally and theologically? I think you're right. I think that uh, not only from a, from a biblical perspective, but from what we know from uh, just living in families, and let alone what we know from a neurobiological perspective, that the experience of shame is common, it's normal, uh, we experience it early and often as human beings, actually far earlier in our lives than most of us would even imagine that we encounter it, given how it functions in our brain. Uh, but it's also true that uh, the, the real problem that we encounter with this phenomenon has a lot more to do with what we uh, than do in our response to it. It's not even so much that shame in and of itself and our experience of it is the problem as much as what we then do very quickly in response to it. 
And we see from the biblical narrative that the response of the people who first felt that uh, was not to turn to the other, was not to seek help, not to seek connection from God or from each other, but was, as you've already mentioned, what their, the response was to hide, the response was to turn away. And unfortunately, uh, this then becomes a fairly common practice that we not only experience, but in our response to shame that is so unhelpful, we then also tend to propagate this. We reinforce it in our own lives. And then we tend to spread that because when we carry shame around with us, uh, it becomes um, like this undercurrent of emotional tenor and tone that is constantly coloring a lot of our interactions. And so we don't just, as we most commonly do, shame ourselves even quietly, uh, but we also then end up reacting and doing that very thing to other people, uh, oftentimes without our even being consciously aware that we're doing it. And the irony about this is that there is that sense when when we um, are aware of our own shame, um, we feel vulnerable. I mean, I, I, that's certainly the way I would interpret Adam and Eve's reaction by covering themselves up. They felt vulnerable. Maybe that's a stretch, so you, you can correct me on that. But, but there's interesting something there because that vulnerability, if it reveals a defect in ourselves, such as in the case of Adam and Eve, where they essentially broke God's single law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did so. They suddenly realized their shame. They were feeling vulnerable. But instead of losing that, using that vulnerability to, to open themselves up before God and be able to find forgiveness, they, they suddenly had the reaction to hide themselves. Do we do the same? Well, we certainly do the same, and I think that your uh, use of the word vulnerability is really helpful. Uh, we talk about this a fair bit in the book, um, and I think that, you know, one thing that we point to is, is this notion that the, uh, we, we often will talk about feeling vulnerable, uh, and the connotation is that it's a bad thing. Like, we don't like to feel vulnerable. Um, what's striking about the biblical text, though, is that it's made very plain in the second chapter of Genesis, preceding that little nasty interaction that the woman and the snake and the man have, that when the man and the woman were created, at the very end of chapter 2, the woman and the man, the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. And that notion of being naked is not just a description. In the Hebrew, it's not just a description of their physicality. It is also a way of stating the fact that they were then vulnerable. And the reality is that, you know, most of us go through life working really hard to not be vulnerable, working really hard not to allow ourselves to feel like we find ourselves in those places, when the reality is that we are vulnerable creatures. Uh, it doesn't take much to get us sick. It doesn't take much to run us over and break our ankle. There's a lot about who we naturally are that make us vulnerable. Now, what's striking about the second chapter of Genesis and that comment is that in our vulnerability, in the first couple's vulnerability, they were also unashamed. And one of the things that we see in terms of the trajectory and intention of the creation narrative is this notion and the irony now as we see that we do our most powerful creative work as human beings when we are quite literally naked and unashamed. We would say, it, I mean, I don't know many things that are more creative than the act of sexual encounter that then leads to the birth of a baby. Both of those things, between a man and a woman, and then the woman delivering a baby, both those things require nakedness and are really quite messy. Require nakedness, that vulnerability, but are also very, very powerfully creative. 
when we are able to acknowledge that we are vulnerable, and now what we would say is that vulnerability means that in order for me to flourish as an individual, I actually need, because of my vulnerability, I need the other person in my life to be helpful for me. I need your assistance. In fact, we would say from a neuroscience standpoint, we flourish in accordance with the creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when the text tells us that God says, let us make mankind in our image, that we are made as plural beings. We are made as people who were intended for each other. And therefore, in Genesis 2, 18, when he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. In fact, because we are so vulnerable. It is in our places of vulnerability that we actually then find ways to be most powerfully creative when we are unashamed. I suggest in the book that evil is not using shame then and or now. Evil is not using shame simply as a way to make us feel bad about ourselves. But it is using shame to dismantle, to deconstruct, to destroy the entire creation not just how we feel about ourselves, but how we behave in relationships, and then what we do to each other and to the rest of the created universe. If you just joined our conversation today, a visit with Dr. Kurt Thompson, a look at the soul of shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Now, when we come back after a brief timeout, we're going we're gonna to turn an interesting corner in this dialogue because it's ironic that as Dr. Thompson is pointing out, it is when there is that sense of openness and vulnerability uh, that God can use uh, that circumstance to bring about creation, to bring about certainly healing and restoration. But isn't it interesting how typically our response is that when when we become aware of our shame, it typically uh, drives us away from others. There is that sense that when it arises, um, we, we recognize that we're, we're fearful of being exposed to others. But as Dr. Thompson points point out, it's just that very exposure to God himself that can bring about healing. How do we get over that hump? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Kurt Thompson with us. He is the author of a new book called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Now, I'm curious, Doctor, just before the break, talking about this issue of our reactions to shame, it's curious that shame arises when one's sense of defects, in particular, are exposed to others, and yet wouldn't it be curious that God, who already knows everything about us anyway, if we could somehow capture that sense of awareness and then be able to use it instead of being uh, repelled from God to see that that God died for us while we were yet sinners— understands us and who we are in all of our defects and and rather than than allowing shame to to repel us from god to rather propel us to god how do we make that happen though well it's a great question and i think fortunately we have uh, a very helpful model for us when we look in the gospel of john in the 21st chapter when we uh, read about the reinstatement of peter it's a well-known story that many of your listeners may be familiar with in which peter after the resurrection And, of course, after his betrayal of Jesus, swims to the shore, has breakfast, but then publicly Jesus essentially begins to ask him questions about whether or not Peter loves him. 
And, of course, this dialogue leads to Peter, and at one point uh, says that, and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time, do you love me? I think, for me, this story is instructive because it tells us a couple of things in general. One is that it was very clear that Jesus kind of, uh, one can can imagine, uh, without, of course, having access to all that has been said that's not recorded in the Gospel around this story, one can imagine how easy it would be for Peter to still be wondering whether or not he has a place in this group, wondering not if he has a place, what that place is. And it's also interesting to me that Jesus did not go off at least to have a private conversation with Peter. It would appear that he starts to ask Peter these questions in front of other people. And what's striking also is that Jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned. There's not going to be any shame left in Peter that, that Jesus is going to allow for. And so he actually has a real encounter with Peter asking him to really explore this issue. Do you really love me? Now, if it's me, there is the part of me that really wants to say, yes, of course I do, while I'm always remembering, well, of course, there is that part of me that apparently doesn't love you, otherwise I wouldn't have betrayed you. What's so striking then, in addition to this, is that Jesus calls Peter to pay attention to what is potentially shaming for him, but then immediately draws Peter's attention to his assignment of feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, of tending his sheep. And essentially, what's uh, important about this, even from an experiential and a community and neurobiological perspective, is that Peter's healing, Peter's reinstatement, is something that takes place in a real, embodied experience. He didn't just get some message from one of the other disciples that came in and said, hey, Peter, I talked to Jesus. He said, hey, that whole incident that happened the night you were, you know, I was crucified, we're cool about that. No, there is a direct encounter with a real person in which Peter really feels the difference, we would imagine, when he hears Jesus commission him, even in the face of knowing what his experience was like. In the same way, we live in a culture that, uh, in which we experience much of our faith knowledge uh, through listening to pastors, through reading scripture and so forth, but it comes to us, as we like to say, it comes to us through our left brain. It comes to us through knowing things kind of logically and linearly and factually and so forth. That's a very different way of knowing than a real encounter with a real person who says, I know what you've done and I still really want to hang out with you. Those kinds of encounters actually activate parts of our brain that are very different than the kind of encounter that we understand and that happens to us when we hear from someone the quote-unquote fact, as it were, that we are forgiven. It is in these direct encounters with real people in which our shame really is exposed that our neurobiological underpinnings of that shame can actually be transformed and changed. The possibility for creating new neural networks that we, in, in which we experience real release, in which we can remember looking in the face of my friend as I have made confession to him, and hearing my friend and remembering my friend say, Kurt, I am with you in this, even in the face of this thing that has happened. That is something that in terms of what I remember and what will actually have powerful impact on my life is going to be far more potent for me than just my hearing the fact that God loves me. And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to really practice being in small communities of people who are practicing this this, uh, effort of confession and forgiveness on a regular basis in order for us to have real experience 
that reinforces the very things that we read about in the scriptures, and so therefore live out the very nature of what St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, about what it means to live as, as part of the body of Christ. So when we're exhorted in Scripture to confess our sins to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ, that there is that sense of, I think what you're suggesting here, that dynamic that's taking place that, that not only allows us to address the, the theological aspects of guilt and shame, as we've been delineating here, but as well as addressing all of this, the psychological ones and the need for that, 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 um, that horizontal level connectivity to have that experience, that community, so to speak, in order to, to experience what it's like to be forgiven. That's exactly right, uh, Craig. I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's striking that, that Jesus said in the Gospel of John again, and they, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That our primary witness to the world about who Jesus is is embodied in the way we love one another. And a primary way in which we demonstrate love for one another is the way that we live with and demonstrate forgiveness for each other's foibles, in which we demonstrate and live out what it means to be vulnerable, to be naked, and yet not shame, ha- not let shame have the talking stick in this space. We, in, in the book, we talk about this model of what we read about in the letter to the Hebrews, in which we read, therefore fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. If we're going to watch what Jesus does and do what he did, Jesus was someone who went to the cross. He went looking for shame. He didn't wait for shame to come to find him. He went looking for it in order for him to do the business with shame that needed to be done with it. And so one of the exercises that we give to people is to uh, begin to actually do an inventory of shame. Where are those places in which shame wants to hide out in your life? The more we are actually going to look for it, the less opportunity it has for hijacking our brains, literally, and our relationships catching us off guard. As we go to look for it and then tell others about this, we find ways to literally create new neural pathways, new neural networks that over time can begin to outpace our shame so that shame does not have the same kind of powerful influence in our lives. So that ultimately then that shame is not something that winds up driving this major wedge between God and ourselves, where we have this sense of diminished value, we convince ourselves God's made a mistake with us, things of this sort, uh, sort of that uh, that warped view, that warped understanding of our relationship with God, uh, that damaged view that uh, so many people often uh, walk in, but rather to understand that that shame can um, uh, bring about not just the, the awareness that we are exposed, but then to allow that vulnerability to happen so that we can find healing and restoration. Because as I said before, shame, if treated in the proper fashion, if responded to in the proper fashion, like pain, can actually be an important alarm system that tells us there's something wrong that needs some attention in your life. Our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, the book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Newly published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
What has Frank Peretti been up to? Being the New York Times best-selling author of such favorites as This Present Darkness, Piercing the Darkness, The Oath, The Visitation, well, Frank has been busy, and now he's back with a brand new novel entitled Illusion, already on the New York Times best-selling list, and Frank Peretti is always great to have you on the program. Well, man, I am really glad to be with you. Thanks a lot. And delighted to have you back with yet another great, exciting novel. This one, kind of an interesting one, and I think one that, in reading through this, even though I think perhaps, Frank, a lot of us would consider your work as sort of a, a novels targeted toward adults, the aspect of magic that you bring into this new novel, I think, has got something for everybody. Oh, it's a, it's a really cool story. Um I keep imagining it like a movie. I, I can really see it as a family kind of movie, too. It's just got some great visuals and it's all the magic tricks and the effects and uh, the characters are delightful, too. And give us kind of an overview. And, of course, we never want to give away the plot, but as I understand it, um, you, you follow the life of a husband and wife team who suddenly, in a tragic car accident, the wife dies, or so we think. Or so we think, and Dane, this Dane and Mandy, they've been a magic act for 40 years, but they're separated. Of course, there's a terrible car wreck, and Mandy is supposedly killed. Dane retires, moves up to Idaho, gets a ranch, and he just kind of grieves his loss, wondering what in the world he's going to do, and he misses her so much. In the meantime, Mandy, who, well, we thought she was dead, but damn, it's one of those uh, weird, mysterious science fiction kind of things that we don't know what in the world's happened. It's part of the mystery. She ends up as the 19-year-old girl she was back in 1970. And here she is in 2010. And uh, she thinks she's crazy. Everybody else does. Too. She ends up in a mental ward for a while because here's this girl in 2010 thinking that she's from 1970. And, uh, well, she gets away from the mental ward and She's a magician by trade. She does magic tricks. She did from junior high and high school and was in talent shows and things. So she goes out on the sidewalk and starts doing magic tricks uh, for people, just trying to get a few tips to survive because she can't get a job or anything. Well, while she's out there on the sidewalk, she runs into this 60-year-old man who happens to be a pretty good magician himself. He begins to mentor her and tell her how to perform and how to uh, increase her skills and so forth. And so begins this relationship. But, of course, what you have here is Mandy, who thinks she's crazy because she thinks she's from 1970. And then you have Dane, who has just lost his wife and is grieving for his wife. And now he's looking at a girl who's the spitting image of the girl he met in Philadelphia 40 years ago. And so now you have the mystery and the romance all began to wind up. And uh, so here we go. You know, what's fascinating about this, this journey, Frank, that you take us on inside the pages of illusion that really, in many respects, sort of transcends time and space, something that ironically, I think all of us have have dreamed of doing either for the pure fascination of it or maybe with the thought in mind of being able to go back and change our path or right some wrongs or or somehow be able to have a, an ultimate uh, better outcome uh, of the future. That's really interesting. Uh, that was part of what goes into this when I was writing the thing is going back over my life and, and the places I've been and how much things have changed over the years. Um, for instance, Mandy is suddenly in a world of cell phones 
and computers and uh, wireless networks. Uh, none of that stuff existed in 1970. And uh, it's just amazing how fast things can change. And what would we have done differently? <laughs> when you start playing around with time, all kinds of questions come up. Oh, undoubtedly so. And then, of course, on top of that, you, you mix in this element of magic. Now, talk to me about that, because I've, I've got to imagine, just based on your, your previous bestsellers down through the years, which folks are all familiar with, going back to this present darkness and so forth, you obviously have a broad and very fertile mind, most of that concentrated in the supernatural and looking at, you know, what goes on in, in the other realm that, that we're all present in. Um, and yet into this novel, you fold in the fascination of magic. Was this something that attracted you, Frank, even as a kid? Yeah, I've always, uh, I've never been a magician myself, but of course, I always like a good magic act. And you can't beat a good magic act for uh, visual stuff. It can be very interesting to watch. And uh, I was dealing with um, time warps and interdimensional travel and all kinds of really interesting things that, oh man, it works perfectly when you have a magician who suddenly, in Mandy's case, and is able to perform illusions that nobody can explain. And it all ties into the uh, mysterious scientific thing that's going on in the background and who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. It's a, it's a gradually building mystery. And so it's all organic to the story and highly visual and fun at the same time. And toward that degree, I mean, you don't approach this in the novel casually. I mean, you, you actually brought in a professional magician, I understand, to serve as kind of a consultant. So that as you're working at bring, bringing the visual to life through words, you, you were really looking for a great degree of realism here, weren't you? Oh, my. That's what made it so much fun, uh, doing all the research for this. Tony Brandt, he's a magician down in Orlando, Florida. He plays uh, performs all the time at uh, a place called Wonderworks in Orlando, Florida. Wonderful Christian brother, and he is absolutely hilarious. Now, he's really funny. And he does some amazing illusions just uh, as a matter of riotous performance. You know? And, uh, oh, he spent a whole lot of time with me and gave me a whole list of books to read. And uh, I bought magic tricks and I read books and I subscribed to Magic Magazine for two years. And uh, it's really a fascinating field. And I really respect these men and women who get into this field who are really good at what they do because it is hard. I tried to learn a couple magic tricks myself and made a fool myself. <laughs> <laughs> it, it takes a lot of practice to do what they do. And yet what's interesting about all of this is that even though we're watching magic and it takes us to a whole different realm that clearly uh, tricks our eyes, tricks our mind, that, that sense of what really isn't, but they're trying to convince us that it is, uh, there are some parallels to that in the spiritual realm, aren't there? Well, there's, yeah, the whole point of uh, illusion, like the... Mandy and Dane spent their lives creating illusions and uh, entertaining people with the idea that, oh, they're seeing something that isn't really the way they think it is. Uh, at the same time, they're kind of trapped in a weird situation where they're actually part of an illusion themselves. And that speaks symbolically of our struggles here in the spiritual realm where 
we are trying to discern truth from error, and often we are in a situation in our lives where we think, well, what does the scripture say? There is a way that seems right, but the end thereof is death. Um, a deception can set in, and we can think we're doing okay, but things aren't the way we think they are. And, of course, ironically, then, in that regard, I guess the, the, the great master illusionist would be Satan himself, uh, who, you know, from the very beginning there in the Garden of Eden, question hath God said, is it all that it really appears to be? Uh, and, and immediately to get our minds kind of thinking down a different track, that uh, we mix the, the differences between what is reality and what is fantasy, or maybe uh, more appropriately so in the spiritual dynamic, uh, what is good and what is evil. Well, exactly, and that's part of the, one of the themes of the illusion is Mandy is the one who's lost in this huge illusion where she doesn't know who she is or when or where she is, doesn't, and uh, it's part of the struggle for her to weave through all of this and uh, Dane as a type of Christ becomes her guiding light and if she just kind of keeps aiming for him and follows his counsel she gets through all this web of deception and so it's an interesting symbolism that runs through the book she's uh, like it says in the book she's like a salmon swimming up river she is going to get there and nothing's going to stop her and often that's exactly the way we are in our walk and our struggles and so forth we just have that goal of heaven in mind and with God to guide us and Jesus as our Lord and our wisdom, we we weave through it, you know, and we withstand all the deception and we finally get there. Ooh, that's, cool. that's a great thought. And, of course, one of the exciting things here, too, as much as we, we began talking about that sense that this is a journey inside the pages of illusion that, that sort of transcends time and space and, and something that we've all dreamed of doing when we can go in and manipulate things to change the outcome, where in real life, while we can't do that, uh, we we can change the outcome insofar as the end results. I think about man's separation from God based on our sin. And while there's no way to go back and undo the ways in which we have offended a holy and righteous God, there is a way that we can nevertheless escape, escape the penalty that we are due through the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. Well, that is so precious. And you know, it's the grace of the Lord that follows us, the fact that we are the righteousness of God in Christ, that we are, you know, I, I like to think of King David, you know, who stumbled in so many ways. It wasn't it wasn't just with Bathsheba, he, he, he was a man of clay like any of the rest of us, and yet he had a heart for God, and God recognized that and always honored David as a man after his own heart. And uh, that's the kind of guy I want to be. I, I, I stumble in many ways, but I walk in the grace of God. I walk in the righteousness that's, uh, that, that's mine in Christ. And, oh, man, when I get to the end of my life, I want the Lord to be able to say, Frank did a good job. He, <laughs> he messed up here and there, but you know what? He's a man after my own heart. Our conversation today with New York Times bestselling author Frank Peretti, the latest book entitled Illusion, now available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as on Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation with Frank Peretti as this edition of Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with our very special guest today, we are delighted, as always, to have New York Times bestselling author Frank Peretti join us on the program. This time around, we're talking about Frank's latest book, just newly released. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it, of course, online. Recently made its way right up to the New York Times bestseller list, as we would have anticipated from Frank, the new book entitled Illusion. Interesting in this novel, as we were mentioning before the break, Frank, because you you, you draw in a great deal of magic into the book and so there's that sense of escapism and yet some of the some of the strong realities that we have to deal with in life and and in that regard uh, very much like your previous best-selling novels where you've warned us of some of the the realities that we face particularly as believers whether we're dealing with the reality of the danger of, of, of the spread of new ageism in our society today or just the reality of the, the spiritual warfare the spiritual minefield that we find ourselves in Oh yeah, uh, every book I've written, it you can almost trace where I've been in my walk with the Lord and the things that have concerned me that I felt I should write about. Uh, just check the books like the Darkness books, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. The whole words are actually about spiritual warfare, addressing the encroachment of neo-paganism culture and how demonic and you know demonic spirits and their influence can be a reality when i wrote the visitation i was writing about our our questions our doubts our struggles with our faith that happen sometimes and how we kind of want to have a jesus of our own making who gives us what we want instead of making us take our vitamins and finish our dinner <laughs> so to speak um yeah, I, I wrote I, in this book, Illusion, I just wanted to write about the beauty of marriage and how God gave us marriage and, and a beautiful wife as such a wonderful symbolism of Jesus and his church. Um, it's a beautiful pattern. You mentioned earlier about a number of your films, Frank, that have made it to the big screen. I think of The Visitation, which was adapted for film back in 2006, others as well. Uh, kind of a, a passion of yours, as I recall, I think I read somewhere that you had studied film and screenwriting at UCLA. This new book, it sounds like it's got tremendous potential to make it to the big screen and, and with a great degree of excitement, given um, all of the wonderful uh, magic that uh, takes place throughout the pages of Illusion. Well, this book would make an absolutely tremendous movie because it has all the right ingredients. It has adventure. It has a deep and wonderful, very meaningful romance in it. It'd be a great movie. It's a good movie for the family, too. Uh, Good, feel good story. This is, you know, obviously a great reward for many authors to see their um, books eventually make it to the big screen. Even though there's sometimes frustration in the in the way in which things kind of lose something in the translation. For you, was this a passion from the very beginning? In other words, even when you sat down and wrote some of your early big bestsellers like This Present Darkness and, and Piercing the Darkness to go back a better part of 20 years, was there an idea even behind uh, those books at the time that you'd hoped that they would make it to the big screen? And that, that dream kind of stayed with me even into my adult years. And so that was the way I was going. But, of course, that is such a very, very difficult and complicated business God, in his divine plan, decided that uh, I should just be a novelist. And so that's what I'm doing today. Uh, well, it's a lot cheaper. 
And, of course, along the way, you, you get the pleasure once in a while of seeing one of your works to, in fact, to make it to the big screen. Now, when you are not busy uh, writing or adapting your books for the big screen, uh, did you still fiddle around with the banjo? I understand at one time you used to play uh, a pretty mean banjo in the bluegrass group. I sure did. I played in a group called Northern Cross, and we were a band for nine and a half years. And Yeah, I played the banjo, and... Uh, well, I don't know. I listened to our CD, and I guess I was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> now, does, now does, does Barbara still let you uh, break the banjo out once in a while and do that? Can you play it around the house okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just, I had it up this morning, as a matter of fact. I was trying to get back into shape again. I have another little gig coming up where I have to play. And so, man, I got to get it out of mothballs and get my fingers going again. So, that was a lot of fun getting that out. That's fun. That, that's good. You know, it gives you a nice uh, nice break, too, from uh, from the writing and, and something that you obviously have a joy and passion for. Uh, you are um, kind of a native to the Pacific Northwest, as I recall, and you're still living up in Idaho, aren't you? Right, yeah, I'm up in the Idaho Panhandle. Um, if you have any idea, you can see Cord Lane or Kellogg on the map. I'm up in that neck of the woods. Nice part of the country, and, uh, you know, you're not too far away from the action if you want it, and yet uh, a great way to get away in God's country and and uh, be amongst the uh, the tall ones, as they say. Oh, yeah, well, it's real pretty right now. We're finally getting into springtime, and, uh, boy, I can look out my window here and see snow-capped mountains, and then there's forest and there's a river down below the house that's running real high now because the snow's melting. So. That's a that's a great inspiration, isn't it, for a writer to have that kind of a an environment in which to to uh, be able to sit down and kind of uh, commune with God and nature and then uh, let the creative juices flow, isn't it? Well, there's such a wonderful feeling of serenity here and just to walk out and hear the birds singing and right now the the blossoms are bursting out and ooh man they're pretty so it's a continual show out there the lord's always doing something what's um what's anything in the works coming up now that you've got this one to press and already uh, made it to the new york times bestseller list uh do authors uh, think that far ahead uh what do you look for when you say okay time to sit down and start putting another one down on paper well, what I do, what I'm doing right now, is I'm just doing a lot of listening and thinking and praying and sorting things out. I'm exploring the church and its history and where it is now and where it's going. And I have some questions I'd like to grapple with and try to figure out. And I, I, I try to discern the mind of God in terms of what he wants me to write about. So it's not just it's not just necessarily spontaneous whatever hits the top of your mind. I mean, in the end, there is a theme here in the sense that you want your readers to walk away both having been entertained and hopefully to get them to ask a lot of the right questions in, in, in the realm toward where the Lord would want us to be thinking. Yeah, that's right. I, I view myself as, uh, I guess I'm a builder. And an equipper. I try to feed and equip and build the body of Christ and just keep them thinking, keep them growing. And I do that through stories, just the way Jesus did. Yeah, good example. And and, and obviously a wonderful way to illustrate because it, it takes us into a realm that we can all either escape to or relate to. And at the very least, put us into that place where we start thinking and praying. Um, and, and hopefully really being earnest about uh, seeking after God. In the end, Frank, for those that are going to go run out and pick up a copy of your new book, Illusion, what do you hope that they take away from this particular book? Well, I think it's best said that there's a guy 
wrote to me on Facebook, and he read the book, and he was married to his wife for 31 years. Well, he still is, <laughs> but he said, you know, I already enjoyed your book. And he, he named his wife, and she, her name is Tammy, and he said, you know, your book helped me to really appreciate my wife all the more. And I thought to myself, well, now there's somebody who really got the point of this book. So is there, a, is there a big part of you and Barbara in this book? I mean, is there a lot of inspiration taken from your own relationship inside the pages of Illusion? Most certainly. I mean, we don't have the same story as Dave and Mandy do, but the emotions, the love, the uh, devotion is still there. And there are a few little snapshots of Barb in there that I borrowed from our real life, and I gave those to Mandy. So... Yeah, I, I drew upon our relationship and my own feelings uh, and my own reflections of my love for her when I wrote this book. Does she get a, a chance to see that? In other words, before you say, okay, honey, I'm, I'm sending the manuscript off, does she get a chance to set eyes to that so she can kind of pass, to, pass the official approval? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's the first one who gets a chance to read it. Actually, I read it to her as we're lying in bed there before we turn the lights off. If I've got a new chapter, I'll, I'll read it to her. And, uh-huh. <laughs> Is there a sense, Frank, uh, that as you do so, if Barbara gives thumbs up, you know that you're heading in the right direction? Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's times when she'll say, uh, she'll say if she doesn't get something or something went by her, then that helps me to fix it, too, and make sure that it works. And especially, you know, especially when one of my characters is a woman, um, it's very helpful for me, a guy, to have a woman reading and hearing this to help me uh, stand on track as to how a woman deals with problems in life and how she thinks and what's important to her. Absolutely. And, and then what a great way to not only celebrate your own relationship, but then, as you say, when somebody is uh, emailing you or writing you to say, gee, Frank, the new book really helped me in my marriage relationship. Uh, what a delightful outcome. I know that in the end, it's got to be the heart's desire of every novelist like yourself, not only to entertain people, but to challenge them. And if somebody can grow and learn from a, a book like Illusion, even more so than it worth all the effort. Exactly. Yeah, I I need to know that I'm making a difference out there. So it means a lot when people write or they come up to me and, and tell me what how the books have touched their lives. That's what makes the whole business worthwhile. That's what keeps me doing it. And clearly for all the millions that have gone out and picked up copies of your books down through the years, uh, Frank, you're making a difference and you're bringing a great deal of joy to all of us. And uh, no doubt readers of the new book will feel the same. Already on the New York Times bestseller list, the book, Illusion, its author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Frank Peretti. Frank, is always a delight to have you on the show. Thanks for dropping by to visit. My privilege and an honor, too. Thank you very much. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.